The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to return to this passage. Um, we read it a moment ago in our congregational reading, and I want to use it as the text for the Christmas message. Usually, we would read from Matthew chapter 1 or from Luke chapters 1 and 2. Sometimes we go to the prophecies in the Old Testament, like Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah predicted the birth of Christ, or perhaps to Micah, who wrote 700 years before Christ was born and said that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. But if we're going to talk about prophecy of the birth of Jesus, then the place for us to go to find the oldest prophecy, the first prophecy, would be to the very beginning. And that's to go to the beginning of the Bible, to the beginning of Genesis, when only, probably only a brief time after the creation, God promised that Christ would come into the world. I'd like you to look at chapter 3, and we're just going to pick out a few verses as we start to refresh you on what we've read. In Genesis 3, verse number 1, is the introduction of Satan into our world. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Verses 4 and 5 are Satan's lie. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Verse 6 is the first sin. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Verses 14 to 19 are the curses that God put on them because of sin. There's a curse on the serpent, a curse on the woman, a curse on Adam who is the breadwinner. There's a curse on the ground. There's a curse of death so that both men and animals die. And then there is this. There is the expulsion from the garden. And that's in verse number 24. So he drove out the man... And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. My message this morning is paradise regained. This is not the same as John Milton's classic epic poem from the 17th century. Milton wrote a sequel to his most famous work entitled Paradise Lost, and his title was Paradise Regained. Now, some of the thematic elements of Milton's poem are in my message today, but Milton's work centered on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Well, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to focus on Jesus' triumph of his glorious work at Calvary, for which he brought us back again to the entrance of paradise and gave us the good hope that we may re-enter the paradise that Adam lost. In Genesis, we find the reason that Christ came. 
what it was all about, what made it necessary for him to come. A good place to start is always at the beginning. And so I want to start where God started and work our way forward and just keep going forward until we get to the thing that all Christians today are waiting for. Now first, thousands of years before there was a manger in Bethlehem, God gave the promise that Christ would come. Now the last verse of the chapter ends with Adam and Eve forced to leave God's paradise. In this story, there are two people that are created and placed into a perfect environment, and they had a unique relationship with God that no human sense have ever experienced. And this is because they were innocent, they had no sin that would keep them from freely fellowshipping with and communicating with their holy Creator. This is also the story of the introduction of sin into God's creation. And this is when the serpent, the one who's known as Satan, fooled Adam and Eve. He lied to them and he tempted them and then he tricked them into disobeying God. He told a lie that they believed. And so they sinned against God. And because they disobeyed God, it brought about the terrible cause that made him drive Adam and Eve out of paradise. This is the story of the fall of man. In less than 1,500 words from the beginning of Genesis 1-1 were introduced to a cosmic conflict, a conflict that, that spread from the unseen spiritual world when Satan sinned against God himself, it spilled over into the visible world of the creation. And this is an ongoing conflict that will not be settled. It will not be over until the world is burned up, until it is destroyed, until it is renovated, and then paradise will be regained. But before God drove Adam out of the garden, he made a promise. And interestingly, that promise was not made to Adam. Oh, Adam and his posterity would receive the benefits of it, but the promise was not made directly to Adam. Instead, God said this, to his adversary, to the serpent, Satan. God told him that through the woman that he had deceived, that he would bring a deliverer who would crush his head. Now, invoking Milton, we could say that was poetic justice. There is poetic justice in what God said, because the one who was weak, the one who'd been taken advantage of by a more powerful being, the weak woman, would give birth to a son who would destroy Satan's tyranny forever. And God's own Son would come to crush the life out of Satan for what he had done. In the 15th verse is the first time the gospel was preached. And it was God who preached it in what is known as the Proto-Evangelium. And God said to Satan in, John, in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman. And that seed is Jesus Christ. Not since the beginning of time have we ever heard of anything like the seed of the woman. It's always the seed of the man. It's the seed of the man that, that provides for the birth of a child. It's the seed of the man. But this was not to be a son with a human father. This is a son who would be born from above. He would be born from God. And he would be a virgin-born son, a human virgin impregnated with the seed of the Holy Spirit. 
And he would be God incarnate, born of a lowly Galilean virgin. But for now, there is this conflict. This cosmic battle begins to rage on the earth as it did in the spiritual world when Satan rebelled against God. And that conflict spilled over to the creature and men and women were thrust into this battle that goes on between good and evil, between God and Satan. And all people are in this conflict. And they're either on one side of it or the other. They are either on God's side or they're on Satan's side. There is no other choice. There is no neutral ground. Every person is in this conflict. For you to live is to be in the conflict. There are no choices that are made to avoid it. All of us live in a war zone. If you follow Christ, you join in the conflict against Satan. If you reject Christ, you remain with Satan and the powers of darkness. Well, sadly, that makes you Satan's ally, and you may not even know that Satan is never anyone's ally. Satan's only desire is to see you lost in hell, to see your soul go into hell. Well, how did this conflict begin? What's going on between good and evil? Well, it started with a curse, the curse that began the conflict. God cursed the earth because sin defiled the creation. The entire earth was cursed. Adam was driven out of his earthly paradise. Thorns and thistles grew up. Harmless animals became predator and prey. Adam was headed for trouble. All his days would be difficult because he was infected with sin. And from that day forward until this very hour in which we live... We are all cursed with this disease of sin. Sin brought us trouble. Sin brought disease. Sin brought strife. It brought hatred. And finally, sin brings death. And so for paradise to be regained, sin must be erased. Sin must be rooted out in every form because paradise cannot be regained and innocence restored until sin is gone forever. And this is the reason that we have the promise. The promise is that Christ will come, that He will remove the curse, that He will undo it by cleansing us from our sins and destroying the works of the devil. And that promise, the purpose of the promise is told in 1 John 3, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. When the works of the devil are destroyed, then we have the next thing that comes, and that is the recovery of righteousness. True righteousness is the righteousness of God. Righteousness means to be right with God. Whenever there's sin, man is not right with God. And so for us to be right, our sins have to be dealt with. Sin has to be done away with. To get back into paradise, righteousness must be recovered. Well, the last time that I checked, there wasn't anybody that lived without sin. Every person since that fateful fall of Adam was born with a sinful nature. I mean, Adam's, Adam and Eve's own children uh, are proof of that. Cain killed Abel because... He was infected with the madness of that sinful nature. And then Adam passed that sinful nature to all of us, and it lives in us from generation to generation. So we're not going to fight our way back into paradise. 
Every time that we try, there's a cherubim with a flaming sword there that keeps us out. We cannot get in. Sin cannot re-enter paradise. And that's the reason that Jesus came and the reason that He was born of a virgin. He couldn't be born of Adam. He couldn't have that sinful nature and have the ability to restore paradise. He can only do it by being sinless and then living a perfect life. And when he did, his sinless life was merited, merited paradise for us. And that, folks, is the gist of what it means to be saved. If you want the simplest definition of salvation, it is to be right with God by receiving the righteousness of Christ merited in his perfect life. God requires it and you don't have it. And so when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, the perfect righteousness of Christ is given to you, and that's the only way that you'll enter paradise. Now, whenever I teach, there's nothing good that you can do to be saved. That's what I mean. The best of us and the best that we can do is never good enough to unlock paradise. Only Christ can do that, and He does it by giving you His righteousness. That's the key that unlocks the gate. Righteousness is recovered by the sinless life of Christ. But that isn't all that he did. Sin is crime against God and no crimes can go unpunished. So Christ not only gives us perfect righteousness, but he also came to suffer the punishment of our sins. The guilt of sin is removed by, the, by a payment that's made. And so to reenter paradise, the price of sin must be paid, and Christ did that when he died on the cross. Now the benefit of Christ's suffering is appropriated to you when you put your faith in him, when you believe that it was his life given on the cross and his blood that was the payment for your sins, then the righteousness of God is given to you. And then Christ forgives you. And God says that you're right with Him. You are justified from your sins. And until that happens, there is no one who is right with God. Now, returning to Genesis 3.15 and the promise that Christ would come, we see that God said that Satan would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. What did He mean by that? Well, the bruising that He's talking of, speaking of, is the, is the death of the cross. That, yes, Christ would suffer... But that was only a bruising. He would be killed, but he wouldn't be defeated. Instead, death couldn't hold him, and so he arose from the grave. He conquered death, he is alive, and he lives to step on the head of the serpent. He will crush the serpent's head. That's a brief synopsis of Genesis chapter 3. The first prophecy of Jesus Christ is found there. God didn't send Adam out of paradise and say, there is no hope that you will ever return. No, there is hope. There is hope by faith in the seed of the woman. Faith in him allows anyone who believes to enter paradise. Now, I want to shift gears and move the story along. The promise was made at the beginning, but it was a long, long time before Christ came. You can read through the Old Testament and there are years and years and years to pass that pass and there's much to do. There's, in that intervening time, there's much that needed to be done to prepare for the entrance of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come into the world. So I want to talk about that next and that is the preparation for Christ to come. 
In Galatians chapter 4, there's another Christmas text. It's not the details that we have in Matthew or in Luke, but nonetheless, it does speak of Christmas. And here, Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. The fullness of the time. That means the time that was appointed by God the Father. God's timing is always perfect. It's never too soon and never too late. And it was not until everything was properly in its place that Christ was born. I suppose that if you or I had planned it, we would say, well, isn't there a better time? What about our time? Wouldn't that be a better time for Jesus to come? I mean, after he waited for so long, why couldn't he just wait a few more years and wait to come to our time? And this would be the perfect time for Christ to come. We have satellites that can beam images all across the world. Christ could be born in Bethlehem and ABC and NBC and CBS and CNN. They could all be there with their microphones and their cameras and they could stream it to the entire world. Christ is born in Bethlehem. The wise men could have GPS on their camels. They don't need a star get their GPS and they head out. They, have to, they can even bypass Herod. They don't have to ask him directions about where to go. Surely, God missed the best time. But no, when He came, it was God's time. And God's time is always the right time. So what was the world like when Jesus came? Well, it was a time of religious desperation. The promise that Christ would come was first given there in Genesis 3.15, and then it was repeated and repeated, repeated throughout the writings of the prophets. For much of Israel's history, the prophets were writing about it, but nobody was listening. They paid very little attention to it. It seems at times they even forgot that God had promised a Messiah. In practice, they lived as if Christ would never come. But then God shook things up. God took away their kingdom. God took away the temple. That was gone. And they never thought that it could happen, but it did. In 722 B.C., the, the northern ten tribes of Israel had been split off from the rest of the nation, and they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Only about 150 years later, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they also disobeyed God, and so God sent the Babylonians upon them, and they went into captivity in Babylon. The prophets had warned about it, consistently warned. And so when the people were in that captivity, they began to read and they began to look again. And then when that Babylonian captivity was ended, the prophets, all the prophets were searched again and they began to look for the Messiah. And they were hopeful about it. There were many that they thought could have been the Messiah. They kept looking for 400 years. They were looking. Now, if they just paid really close attention to the prophecy of Daniel, they would have known the exact year that Jesus would come. But they weren't that good at understanding prophecy, so they just kept looking year after year after year. There was one fellow by the name of Eleazar Maccabees who looked like a very good candidate to be the Messiah. He took on the Seleucid Empire and, and uh, he led an uprising, but poor old Eleazar was killed when a drunken elephant fell on him. So he couldn't be the Messiah. He had a brother by the name of Judas Maccabees. And his brother cleansed the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes had offered a sow on the altar in Jerusalem, at the temple in Jerusalem. 
But you know what happened to him? He didn't accomplish very much at all. The Jews still celebrate the event of what Judas Maccabeus did. You know what it's called? It's called Hanukkah. That's the, it actually means the, the rededication of the temple. But Judas Maccabeus died, and Judas Maccabeus didn't really change anything for the Jewish people. So they kept looking. And they were increasingly desperate because at that time, they were living under the oppression of Rome. By the time that Jesus came, the greatest, the greatest empire that the world had ever seen was now in control, and they were being oppressed, they were under Roman occupation, and the rule of Rome was often cruel. Matthew wrote that Herod, that, that Roman puppet who was, who was the king in Judea at the time that Jesus was born, when he found out that another king may come, another Messiah, or the Messiah was born, he had all the children around Jerusalem killed. That's the kind of oppression, the cruelty that the Jews lived under, and they wanted to be delivered from it. So they looked and looked for somebody who could be the Messiah. John the Baptist came, and they thought, well, maybe he could be the Messiah. He began to baptize, and he preached repentance, and he kept telling people that the kingdom of God was near. And the Jews said, well, maybe he's the Messiah. Well, the Messiah was, was here. Christ was here, but he wasn't in Judea where they were looking for him. He was, by this time, in Galilee. The expectations for him were higher than ever before. And it's a miracle that most of them missed him when he did come, but they missed him because their expectations were wrong. They didn't expect that there would be a baby that's born in a manger, and they didn't expect a boy that would grow up to become a humble carpenter. They didn't expect somebody low on the social scale. Well, they were looking for somebody rich. In their mind, God's favor is upon the rich, so they looked for a rich man. But more than that, more than that, they looked for a great military leader. They wanted back into paradise, but they had their way that they wanted to do it. And their way was a crushing military defeat. What they wanted to do was a humble Rome, to step on Rome and destroy them. But Jesus wasn't here for that. His kingdom would come. But first man must be restored. First sin must be dealt with, and Israel's hypocritical religious system was in no shape to deal with sin. They were self-righteous, not God-righteous. And there is nobody that's getting into paradise without Christ. There is no self-help in God's system. And then, the time was right because it was a time for gospel expansion. Culturally, the world was prepared for the time of Christ. Perhaps one of the most important aspects of Christ's advent was how God prepared the world for rapid gospel expansion of the gospel. Paul wrote in Romans, let, everyone, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now there Paul is referring to governmental power. And he lets us know that God uses government for His purposes. We don't always see that. We don't always know that. We look at our government today and we think, God has no purpose in this. Not what's going on now. God has no purpose in that. But you can rest assured, God knows everything that's going on. God's in control of it all. And He controlled governments at the time that Jesus came and He used governments for His purpose. 350 years before Christ came, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. 
And He gave the world His government, but also He did much more than that. He brought to the world a cultural revolution. The Greek culture, known as Hellenism, became the world's culture, and the Greek language was established as an international language. And when Christ came, Greek was the language of education and commerce. The gospel spread everywhere through the Greek language. It was the common language that united the world. The reason the New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew, is because of the utility of the Greek language in promoting the gospel. But God's still in control. That's 350 years. God's preparing the world through the Greek language, but then something else. He was also preparing the world through the Roman Empire. Not the Pope that would come from it, but he was preparing the world through the Roman Empire. And this was through the system of roads that Rome built. Rome connected the empire, the ins and the outs, from sea to sea across the empire with great roads so that the roads were easily traveled from one place to another, safety in traveling, as people moved across the empire and they were much more mobile than they'd ever been. God planned it that way. So the gospel would spread like wildfire. A traveler who picked up the gospel in one Greek city would take it with him to another country, to another place, and because they could understand the Greek language, he could give them the gospel of Christ. And what early Christians did was to take advantage of all their opportunities to tell people about Christ. They heard how paradise could be regained. They learned how their sins could be forgiven. They believed that people could be righteous. And they weren't ashamed to tell everybody the good news of Christ. Paul described the responsibility of preaching the gospel as a great debt that he owed to his fellow man. He wrote in Romans, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, and it is written, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's the, by the righteousness of God given by faith that we re-enter paradise. And so if you want to live, you always must remember this, the just shall live by faith. Culturally, the world was prepared for gospel expansion. The good news was everywhere that Christ bought back paradise with the price of His blood, and that was known in every country of this world. And so Christ came into this world in the fullness of time, at the right time, and there was a stable in the little town of Bethlehem where the seed of the woman was born. He was God in the flesh. God spoke to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God could just as well have said, she shall bring forth a son who shall regain paradise for his people, he will take away their sins and give them paradise in its place. And so in God's poetic justice, the woman that was deceived, the woman that took of the forbidden fruit, God did not leave the woman with that guilt. 
He didn't pass it all to the woman and say, you are responsible for everybody that goes to hell. But instead, he used the woman to be the one who would bring the one into the world, who would crush the serpent's head and save the world. Now, I want to go back to the first of the message to tie all of this together so we see this final crushing blow to Satan. And this is the plan for Christ to return. The cosmic battle began before the fall in paradise. It spilled over onto the world stage when Satan was determined to destroy man. God created man to glorify him. And as long as sin remains and as long as Satan remains, God's creation is marred. And that keeps God from receiving all the glory that he deserves. So we want to know, is this going to go on forever? Is there no end to this conflict? Will we ever see paradise again? It's been promised. It's way back in Genesis 3.15. That's so long ago. Will we ever see it again? And the answer from the Bible is yes. This will end. As we know things today, this will end. Our present condition is not a permanent one. Christ left the world. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world to comfort us and to aid us until that time that he returns to purge the world from sin and Satan. The philosophers of the ancient world believed that history was circular. They, don't, they didn't really look for anything to end. They believe history is circular. First there is creation, and then there is a fall, there is devastation, and then there is restoration, and then comes devastation, and then comes restoration again, then comes devastation again, and then restoration, then devastation, and it just goes round and round and round, and history repeats itself. And you hear this so often today, don't you? People still believe that's true. History repeats itself. But the Jews knew better. They had the Word of God, and they knew that history is linear, not circular. There was a creation, and then there was a fall, and then there was their age, and then there's the coming age of the Messiah, and then there is another age that is the bliss of heaven. History will end. It will not repeat. Now, they believed it, but they didn't have good understanding of it. It takes Christ to straighten it out. He flattens out the curves of that circle into a straight line, and that line has an end, and He will end it. There's good news and there's bad news about the way that it ends. It's good news for those who are promised to enter paradise, but it's bad news for those that never will. The most frightening thought that you could have today as you think about Christmas is that Christ will return and you've not been justified from your sins and you've not been ready, been made ready to enter paradise. Now, Christ's return has three very important features that you need to know about, and you need to decide which is best. Is it best for me to stay outside of paradise, or is it best for me to enter paradise? Now, the first thing that will happen when Christ returns is the rejection of Satan. In the beginning of the message, I said every person is on one side or the other of this cosmic conflict. On one side stands the allies of Satan, and on the other is the allies of God. And when you were born, you were automatically enlisted into Satan's army. You might not like me saying it, but you were born into Satan's kingdom, and without Jesus Christ, Satan is your God. Now, for the elect of God, that's not permanent. Others, though, are the seed of Satan. 
You were born outside of paradise. Adam was driven out, and because of your natural birth from Adam, because you have that sinful nature, you're on the outside. The present condition of the world is not permanent, neither is the rebellion of Satan permanent. Satan will be destroyed. He challenged God. He tried to usurp God's authority. And like that slithering vermin that Satan is, God's going to take his heel and grind it on the head of Satan and crush him to the ground. Now, interestingly, Micah, that prophet that I mentioned a while ago from the Old Testament, who said that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, that's Micah 5 2. He said he'll be born in Bethlehem. He also said something in the end of his prophecy. He said this They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and fear, and shall fear because of thee. Satan's followers is what he's talking about here. And Satan's followers are like little slithering serpents. They're the seed of Satan. And like their daddy, they're going to end in destruction. That happens when God throws Satan into the burning fires of hell. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil that deceived them. Deceived who? Deceived everyone that's left out of paradise. The devil that deceived them is cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. Now you need to watch this because there are some who might think, well, good riddance. We're glad to be rid of the devil. I'll be glad to see him gone. Now I can get on my way and everything will be fine. But not so fast here. The devil that deceived him. He deceived them and they're going to follow him where he's going. And that's not good news. But I can't tell you the good news until you know how bad the bad news is. Because next is the verdict of Christ. There is a verdict. There is judgment that's coming. And some may say, well, for goodness sake, this is a Christmas message. Can't we do without this for one Sunday? No. No, we can't. Because Christmas is not all fun and games and presents and lights and trees and candles and peace on earth, goodwill to men. And when we turn Christmas into that, we lose the real message of Christmas. The real message is that Christ came to regain paradise. And that's not going to happen without a fight. And it doesn't happen without judgment. And so Jesus is coming to judge the world in righteousness and a verdict will be rendered. Now remember this, that it is righteousness that either admits you or bars you from paradise. Christ is coming to rule in righteousness. And that is not good news for those who aren't ready. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, what does he do? He judges. In righteousness, he will judge and make war. Satan will be cast into hell, and all those who are on his side will follow him. In Psalm 9, it says, The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higalion, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. You see those words, Higalion, Selah? That's in the end of the 16th verse. You know what that means? It means, amen. You better think about that. The psalmist says, it's going to happen. And you better think about it. 
The Lord executes judgment. The wicked is snared in his works and will be turned into hell. Now the good news is that Jesus came to reverse that judgment for all who believe in him. He came to regain paradise for all of us that believe in him. You should be worked up and you should be frightened about judgment and hell. And once you learn that news, then you ought to settle down and trust Jesus Christ and just settle into the joy and the peace of Christmas. Because once you have believed in Jesus Christ, Christmas comes into your heart. Satan's rebellion is not permanent. The rebellion of those who follow him need not be permanent if they trust Christ. The present condition of the world is not permanent. Permanent. There is a plan to regain paradise. And then comes the third, and that is the recreation of this paradise. Peter tells us about it. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, that's verse 13, Look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. A new heaven and a new earth. That's paradise. We look forward to that promise that the earth will be purged of sin. A new heaven and earth will come where there will be no more sin. There's no longer anyone to tempt us. There are no apples to grab. There are no cosmic battles to fight because Satan is gone And all who follow him, evil angels and evil men, they are also all gone. This is paradise regained. And those that enter into this paradise enter into a world of regained innocence and perfect righteousness. Revelation says that nothing that defiles will ever enter there. There are no abominations and no lies. There's no sorrow, no crying and no pain. And then listen to this, this original curse, the one that God gave all the way back there in in Genesis, all the curses that He placed there, all the reasons for the present creation to be found, all of that is gone. Revelation 22 says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now let me show you something about that. In verse number 3, it says, it definitely says, there will be no more curse. Now can we quantify that? Did you know that there is actually one curse that will remain? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 65. All the curses will be lifted, but one, one curse will still remain. The curse of laboring, that is, working hard to make the ground produce, that's gone. The curse of difficult childbearing, painful childbearing, that's gone. The curse of separation from God, that's gone. The curse of the animal kingdom that made them predator and prey, that's gone. Now listen and read how each of those curses are lifted in Isaiah 65, but there is still one that remains. Isaiah 65, verse 23. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. Now that's talking about the curse of hard labor. That's going to be gone. 
Verse 24, And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. That's the curse of separation from God. That curse is gone. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. That's like that's about the curse of conflict that's in the animal kingdom, and that is gone. But listen, in reference back to Genesis chapter 3, there's one curse that is not gone. Do you see it? And dust shall be the serpent's meat. Isn't that curse in Genesis 3? The serpent's going to eat dust. And still in Isaiah 65, after all the curses are lifted, the serpent shall eat dust. You know what he's talking about? The curse on the serpent will always remain. He gets his just due. Satan and his seed are doomed. And then what does he say about them? They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Now knowing what you know from what I've said, what do you think you should choose? Should you choose the seed of the woman? Or do you stay with the serpent? Adam's paradise really was nothing like the one that comes. There's a new paradise that comes. This is eternal life in the presence of God. There's no possibility of another fall. Now essentially, Christmas is the first step towards regaining paradise. For thousands of years, paradise was this distant, unachievable hope. It's just talk, it seems. But then Christ came. But then Christ was born. But then there was a virgin. And there were angels. And there were shepherds. And there were wise men. And there was a baby. And the baby brought the surety of paradise. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's paradise. Paradise is regained because of Christmas. Now, friends, I hope that you know Christ. I hope that you'll not be left out of paradise. And you don't have to be because Christ is ready right now to receive you. He's ready to forgive you of all of your sins. The time is right. You know the Bible says that? The time is right. Today is the day of salvation. He came to make you righteous so that when paradise comes, cherubs with flaming swords won't keep you out. Instead, the angels welcome you, and they become your servants forever. Paradise is regained by placing your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Christmas is real when you know the Christ of Christmas. So what did he do? He regained paradise by his death, burial, and resurrection. He regained it by the gospel. That is the gospel. Christmas is the gospel. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. God told you the truth all along, didn't he? Adam was thrown out so he couldn't reach the tree of life. But for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the way to the tree of life is opened up through faith in him. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for Jesus Christ. Oh, we sung such wonderful songs today, beautiful songs about the Christ who had come and about the glory of Christ, about the throne of God. We've sung about that. We've sung about worshiping the one who deserves all worship. And truly, we can say today 
that Jesus deserves all the praise that we can give, all the glory that can be given. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus who came into the world to save us from our sins. Lord, we pray that in this Christmas season that this would be on the minds of all of us as Christians in this room, that we wouldn't lose sight of what Jesus did and the gift-giving and the hustle and bustle and all the things that are left yet to do. And Lord, let us remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, what he did in coming in his birth and giving us life and then rising from the grave for our justification. Lord, help us to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.